So tonight we're going to be looking at the subject of Samuel. So 1 Samuel is pretty much where we're going to hang out. If you want to make your way there to 1 Samuel. If I forget, by the time we're done next week, we're going to be looking at King Saul. So if you kind of want to have an idea of who we look at um, in the coming days, we'll go to King Saul and then we'll go to David. Um, so that will be right. We'll spend a lot of time here in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. Been walking through these different character studies, looking at people, asking three questions. Who were they? Why do we know them? And what lessons do they teach us? So when we come to life of Samuel, if we remember when we left off, we have skipped a big portion of Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. We're not going to cover every single character that is listed in Scripture. We're just going to cover kind of the main ones. So when we get to 1 Samuel, of course, most people think it was written by Samuel. And Samuel is probably the, the main person, or not the main person, but is very prominent in the first Samuel. Second Samuel, not he's he's already passed away and is off the scene. However, come to the character of Samuel, asking the three questions. So we come to the first one: Who was Samuel? What do we know about Samuel when it comes to daddy, mama, brothers, sisters, wife, kids? What do we know about Samuel? Mother couldn't get pregnant, so okay, prayed for him. Okay. Alright, so do we know what his dad's name was? Eli. No. no. Close. He was almost like a dad, like a surrogate dad for most of his life, but... Elkanah. Elkanah, yeah. Okay, we get that out of 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. You get the idea that it talks about um, there was a certain man, and I'm not going to say that name, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was um, Elkanah, Elkanah um, and that he is credited as being Samuel's father. Now, who was Samuel's mother? Heather. Do what? Heather. Hannah. Hannah, out of 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 2, says he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah and the other one was Penina. Penina had children and Hannah had no children. And so right there at the very beginning, we get the idea when we think about who Samuel was, we understand that he had a mother, father, obviously. Um, We get the father's name, the mother's name. And then like Charles said, (coughs) that... Hannah um, was barren. Penina, or if I'm saying her now, her name correctly, um, the other wife, she had children. How many children did she have? Anybody know? Two. Two? Where do you get that from? Bible. Okay. <laughs> I did my homework. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> So where do you... Where do you Are you asking about Hannah? No. No, Hannah. Yeah, Hannah. Yeah. Son, two sons. Okay. So, yes. So he, she, had, she had multiple kids, right? So he had half-siblings, okay? So we don't know exactly. Well, maybe. Um, it, it says, we're there in... Where am I looking at? Verse... Verse 3 says he had two, two sons. Is that right? Well, that's just talking about the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. But then, when you look down there to verse 4, it says, When he sacrificed, he gave portions to Panana, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. So, um, maybe another translation has a a definite number there. Hophni and Phinehas are the two sons of Eli, who he's going to come in later 
later in the story, but as far as the half-brothers and sisters of Samuel, um, the only thing that I found was there in verse 4, it just said that there were other brothers and sisters that were um, descendants of Elkanah, but half-brothers and sisters of Samuel. Then, did we know Samuel's wife's name? Was Samuel married? Maybe we should ask that question. Was he married? Any ideas? So Hannah will be Samuel's mother. Okay. So, but Elkanah, Elkina had two wives, Penina, and he had Hannah. First wife had children. That's chapter 1 and verse 4. She had children. Hannah was barren, could not have children. They would go up where Eli was serving at the priest. As the priest, they would go up and offer their sacrifices. And when they would offer the sacrifices, Elkanah would give out portions to both wives, but also give the other wife more of a portion to offer in the sacrifice and offering because of her kids. So there was competition because the one wife said, Nanny, nanny, boo, boo, I've got kids. You don't have kids. So Hannah's coming up there and she is distraught and she is pleading to have kids. And so that's where you see there in chapter 1 where she comes into the, the, the tabernacle and she's pleading with the Lord to give me a child. Eli said in there, he's watching her. He thinks that she's drunk. He's looking at her going, why are you showing up at church drunk? She's not the last person to show up at church drunk, but he's looking at her and going, you shouldn't be coming to church drunk. And she says, I'm not drunk. I am just so wrecked in my spirit and tells Eli, this is what my problem is. And Eli says, your faith, you by, because of your faith, you will have a child. And that's where Samuel comes from. So Samuel then has, a, then Samuel comes along, first son of Hannah. Does Hannah have any more children after Samuel? Yes. Okay. So if you go to chapter 2 and verse 21, it'll say, Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. So after Samuel was born, Hannah went on to have five more children. Now, it doesn't tell us exactly why, um, but we do know that she made a vow to the Lord that said, If you will give me a son... I will dedicate that son to the Lord. God gave her Samuel after she then took Samuel and left him at the temple to, or tabernacle, sorry, to be in service to Eli. Then God said, okay, and then she had five more children after that. So Samuel had half brothers and sisters, and he also had five other siblings through his mom and through his dad, Elkanah. So I don't know if that clears up for you, Harold, as far as... So that's so we kind of get an idea. We really don't know the names of half-sisters and brothers. We don't know the names of the full sisters and brothers. Now let's think about Samuel as a husband. Was he married? What? It says she had six, six sons, two, four sons, two Where's that? Uh, after, so that she, had six, that she had four sons and two daughters. Then you go over to the prayer of Hannah. It says the bare woman had seven children. Huh. I don't know. I hadn't caught that. Samuel would have been part of the force of the sons. So see, like, so the Bible that I'm looking at in chapter 2 
In verse 21, it says that she bore three sons and two daughters. But yours says four? Four sons. Well, four, uh, counting, counting. Counting Samuel. Yes. That would be four sons and two daughters. So that would be six. And then over in the prayer, it says the barren, that the barren woman has seven children. Huh. I didn't, I didn't pick up on that. So I don't know, Peter. I didn't. And you're talking about chapter 2 and verse 5. Yes. Huh. How would they have spoken about it? How would they have written that if she had lost a child? Would that be different terminology? I I don't know. I had never seen that before. That's interesting. I read, I read that somewhere up and a long time ago, and I think that's how they addressed it, if I remember right. Thank you. Huh. Yeah. I, no, I, I had never, I had never seen that before, Peter. Thank you. That's interesting. Huh. Okay. So, was he married? Married? No. No. I got one. No. Yes. Was he married? Yes. Yes. Okay. Do we know the wife's name? No. Okay. Do we? Are we sure he's married? He had sons. He had sons. <laughs> so we assume, right? <laughs> Problem is, <laughs> it didn't say it yeah, I don't. Yeah, I would assume. I'm with you all. I assume that he was married. We never get where what his wife's name was. All we know is his two sons' names. So this is in chapter eight and verse one. Um, it says that he made his sons judges over Israel. Verse two. The name of his firstborn son was Joel and the name of a second Abijah and they were judges in Beersheba. Uh, growing up I had a really close friend and his name was Joel and I always wondered to myself why would a parent name a child Joel because the way it is described in the book is Joel was a wicked, uh, a wicked crooked son of a gun. It's like why would you name a child somebody you know was going to be a uh, you know I don't know it just always it always fascinated me why would a parent name a child Joel I, I know there's other Joels that are out there I've heard of other Joels that are out there it's just with this particular one um, it, he fit I mean he ended up going away for a while on a, a lengthy vacation so I mean it fit his name and the character there anyways so chapter 8 yeah so so chapter 8 we have we have a picture that we don't know explicitly that Samuel was married or his wife's name but we assume that because he had two sons there in chapter or in first Samuel chapter 8 and verse 2 named Joel and Abijah so we get this idea that he probably was married because he had two sons. Anything else that you may know about Samuel regarding who was he? Grandkids? Genealogy? Do you have anything else that you may have come across? I did not. That was kind of the bulk of what I could find out biographically about Samuel. Daddy's name is mama's name. Had some half-siblings. Had some full siblings. Probably had a wife that we don't know anything about. Had two boys. Anything else that pops up to you or surfaces to the top? He was divinely called. He was divinely called. That's right. Okay. So then let's just roll into why do we know him? So, Charles, you said because he's divinely called, right? So he is there in the temple and he is uh, 
So Hannah takes him. We don't know exactly how old he was. It says that when he was weaned, um, a lot of people that claim to know a lot more about the Bible than me say that they would normally nurse a child till the child was four or five years old. So we're assuming he was somewhere five, six, seven, eight years old, somewhere in that range. Um, gets weaned. Hannah says... God gave him to me. I promised him to God. So then she shows up and there is Eli and his two boys named Phineas and Hophni. And she shows up and says, hey, Eli, you remember me? Years back, I was here praying. You said I would have this child. I said if I was going to have the child, I would dedicate him to the Lord. I've had the child. Here's the child. I'm dedicating to the Lord. And she leaves him and she leaves. So now Samuel is pretty much being raised by Eli. So somebody, some people may say, well, that Eli was his father. wasn't a biological father, but then he was, for the most part, raised. And from that point on, he lives with Eli up until Eli's death or up until he moves out and does his own thing. And so there he is ministering to the Lord. And if you get down there in chapter 3, 1 Samuel chapter 3, you see... I have a question. Yes. Is biological father still alive at this point? We don't know. Okay. It doesn't tell us whether he was alive or wasn't alive. It was just Hannah said, I told God that I dedicated him to the Lord. God gave me a child, so here I come. I didn't know if we saw him again. Well, say I know he was alive after Samuel was born because he told her you do what's best after, you know, after his son was born. Because she wouldn't go back to the temple until she was dedicated to God. Correct. And then five more kids. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, he probably saw him again. We can assume that we saw he saw him again. And when you get to chapter 3 and verse 1, it doesn't tell us how old Samuel was or how many, how much time had elapsed from her dedicating, you know, to the, to uh, then um, the call. So we don't know if the call was when he had showed up, you know, so she drops him off the first night, you know, and here you go, here's your sleeping bag, here's your backpack, I mean, here's here's your medicine, and then she leaves him that night. Um, I don't think it was probably that night, I think it was well into that time, because it just says, now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days, and there was no frequent vision. And so this is coming on the hills, and I, I usually lean towards default to a chronological reading, so you've already gotten past chapter 2 where um, it talks about in verse 21 about her having more children so I think that we are farther along I don't have a chapter and verse to say that but I think he is either teenage years or early adulthood when he is there in the house also it says in verse 2 and at that time Eli whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that would indicate that Eli was advanced in years however so chapter 3 God comes and he calls Samuel and he tells Samuel I've got a job for you to do. I've got a purpose for you. I've got a plan for you. I have a direction for you to go. So he was divinely called. Now when you think about that divine calling, you look down there in verse 19 of 1 Samuel chapter 3 and it tells us about what this calling looked like. It says and Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground and all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord and the Lord appeared again at Shiloh for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. 
So I don't know, maybe your translation has a different description there at the last part of verse 20, but where it says that my translation was established as a prophet, it's identifying that in that time, and in that setting, the prophet was a person that God would speak to so that he could speak to the people. So not only would he foretell, but he would also say, thus saith the Lord. Now that's a distinction because we still have people today that have spiritual gifts of prophecy. Now, what does that mean? That means that God has equipped them and gifted them with the calling or the ability to speak, thus saith the Lord. This is what the Bible said. This is what's right. This is what's wrong. And in those areas, a person can act as a prophet. Be very careful when people come around and say, I can, I am a prophet and can foretell what is to come. Why? Because they're lying. So there's a difference in in a prophet in that time and in that setting God would speak to. They had no revealed word of God. They didn't have a Bible completed like we do today. So the prophets, God would say, hey, this is what I'm doing and this is what I'm going to do. And then that person would then repeat that and teach and tell the people this is what God is doing and what God is going to do. So it says in 1 Samuel chapter 3 that Samuel was used by God as a prophet. And he was used by God to not only tell the people this is what God said, this is what God wants, but also used to tell them, okay, this is what God is doing in the future. Does that make sense? He wasn't trying to do it for gain. He wasn't trying to do it for his own um, promotion. He was doing it. Whatever God told him, that's what he would do. So you see in chapter 3 where Samuel is used as a prophet. You skip over to chapter 7. And you see where there's another description of Samuel given. And it is in chapter 7 and verse 15. And it says, Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. Well, that's a different description. Now, what's the difference in the descriptions? Well, you had a prophet. prophet would say, thus saith the Lord, and this is what God is going to do. A judge was somebody that would lead the people, direct the people adjudicate right and wrongs and would be more of a governmental leader amongst the people. So Samuel was filling both of those roles. Not only was he serving as the prophet, now he wasn't serving as the priest because during this time Eli was the priest, but he was still a prophet that God was speaking to and he was also working as a judge of the people. In fact, you can see in scripture that he was the last judge before Saul is brought in as the king. And so Samuel Samuel had a unique role in that he was judge and prophet. You'll see other places where God raises up judges to bring about some type of redemption or some type of a relief to his people. And then you also see where God brought up prophets like Elisha and Elijah are two that come to mind as far as prophets that he brought up that would say, thus saith the Lord, and this is what God said he's going to do. So you have both in the Old Testament and in Samuel have someone that you have both of these characteristics in at the same time. Does that make sense? Tracking with me? Okay? So that is something that is unique. That that is something that is unique about Samuel that we find in Samuel is he was both a prophet and a judge. What are some other reasons that you can think of that we would know who Samuel was? 
That's right. That's right. So um, you get over to chapter 10, um, and in verse 1 of chapter 10, it says, And Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head, and he kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people of Israel? Where that's coming from is who is the first king? Saul. That's right. So if you go back over to chapter 8, um, and we'll get to this get to this a little bit later, but when you get back over to chapter 8, the people come to Samuel and say, hey, um, kind of had enough of this judge thing going on, right? Um, everybody else around us has a king. Uh, we want to have a king. Now, why did they do this? Well, because you get to 1 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 1. It says that, verse I'm sorry, verse 3. Um, yet his sons, talking about Samuel's sons, um, Joel and Abijah, yet his sons did not walk in his way, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. So Samuel's two sons were, rot, were, were bad apples. And the people come and say, listen. We've already had enough of Hophni and Phinehas that did a bunch of shenanigans and a bunch of tomfoolery they shouldn't have done. And we've already seen where that road led. So now, here we are. Eli and his two boys are back in history. And now, here we are. And we're going, hey, Samuel, we do not want your two children to follow that model. So instead, they wanted a king. So, what does God do? God tells Samuel, this is where that prophet comes in, go and anoint Saul, king of Israel, and that's who's going to be king. So there's a a foretelling element to that. And so, yes, he anointed Saul. Then you said he anointed two. So what happened to Saul? I don't want to dip too much into next week, but anybody remember what happened to Saul? Why? Why? What, what, what happened? Where, do what? He sacrificed. He sacrificed when he shouldn't, and he didn't obey God completely. So because he didn't obey God completely, and you can see this if you want to in chapter 15, because he didn't obey God completely, God said to Samuel, he's out. (laughs) I'm going to get a new guy. You know? It's like playing basketball. He's going to check out. He's going to set the bench. This guy's going to check in. Right? Okay? So because he sacrificed improperly, and because he didn't completely obey the voice of God, God said... He's rejected. So then who was the second guy? David. That's right. Okay, so um, you see this in chapter 16 and verse 13, where Samuel then comes to the house of Jesse. God had said, you're going to go to the house of Jesse. You're going to anoint one of his boys to be the next king. Go to the house. As the boys are coming in front of you and you're doing your inspection, I will point out the one that is going to be the king. That's the one you anoint. So you know the story. (coughs) Samuel goes to Jesse's house. They traipse along the boys in front of him. And it's like, no, 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 no. And then Samuel's like, hmm, don't understand this. God said that one of these guys was it. And I've already got my eye thinking that's who I would pick or that's who I would pick. And God's like, no, I'm not picking what you pick. I look at different things. They went and got David out of the field. David shows up, said he was a ruddy boy, which is a nice way of saying he was the runt. 
Alright? So we don't think of him being very tall. We don't think of him being very muscular. He was kind of the, the, the runt looking one out of the bunch. And God says, that's the guy. So in 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 13, it says that... Uh, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Just imagine being in the house. All your brothers are in there. Your dad's in there. Samuel, the great judge and prophet's in there. And he takes, and here's, my, here's how my mind thinks. I think of, you know, you get in the chemistry lab, and you got the beaker, you know. It kind of comes down like a little pyramid-shaped little beaker thing. That's what I think of. I think that Samuel has, you know, in my mind, Samuel's got one of those, and, and now he's got oil all running down his head. And uh, his brothers and his dad are like, what does that mean, Samuel? And Samuel's like, he's the guy. Doesn't it say a horn of oil? So I picture the black powder horn. Yeah, I mean that's 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 a little more accurate. I mean it's a little more accurate, but it's not nearly as cool <laughs> as a, as thinking like a graduated beaker, yeah. you know, in a chemistry lab, and we're just gonna you know take that in. He's got the cork and he pulls the cork out, and he's got you know vegetable oil, you know, or it could have been extra virgin olive oil. I don't know, but it was some type of oil, you know, and he pours that over. And you don't know how much oil, you know, a lot or a little. I mean, I've been a, a horn full. You know, I've been, but, I mean, I've been at some church services, and this is, I don't know why you're doing this to me, Harold. I've been at some church services, you know, like where they have the anointing oil up at the front of the church, you know, and somebody comes up and says, I would like to be anointed, and you're like, how much? I mean, they never, they never describe that at school. They don't tell you, like, like if it's like, well, you probably remember, like, Old Spice. I, mean, I was always taught with Old Spice or the old cologne. You know, you'd put your finger over the stopper, do it, and that one drop on your finger, that's what you would, you know. Yeah. And then you'd go back from doubles. <laughs> go back for, go back. But anyways, so I don't, but it's like when they're doing the anointing at the church, I'm like, well, how much do you do? Do you just do a thumb worth on the forehead? Do you do on ears? I mean, do you just take the whole little vial and just, like, salt and pepper shaker? I mean, I never know. I mean, like, there's really never a how much oil is enough kind of thing. Now, for us, yeah, I don't, I've always just, I've always just kind of wondered. I mean, it's just like, why are you doing this? So like, like when you go to the Eucharist in the Catholic Church and everybody lines up and they're all taking communion, which is called the Eucharist, and they're all lined up taking communion and they're, and they're single file headed down there and they go and they get the wafer and they go in the cup and they have the chalice and the priest is whoever's holding the cup and you take a drink and then he takes it, wipes the rim off and turns it and the next person takes a drink. And I'm always wondering like, how much of a drink do you take? I don't, you know, I just, I just, I just, you know, it's one of, I don't know if they talk about that in confirmation class at Catholic school. I mean, but it's like, I, I would like to know. I mean, like, am I supposed to do like the cups we do? I mean, like the way we do Lord's Supper, I mean, yeah. we're making that decision for you. <laughs> we've, already, we've already given you that idea, but I mean, it's like, you got a whole goblet. I don't know. Anyways. <laughs> Just a simple. Okay. So I, don't, I was raised with So you all do the same thing. You all drink out of the same cup, right? Uh, well, you. I always just drank the common. I didn't drink out the common. I drank out of the common. Okay. We had a choice. But they, but there is, I mean, but they, yeah. there is some Lutheran services where they drink out of the common cup, right? Yeah. And they, they just pass it around and they all take a seat. Huh. I just. 
See, you know what my look? They had passed around one of my sweet children. would be like, hmm. <laughs> That's, that's, that's how my kids are. That, that's the personality of my children. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so, where'd you, where'd you, where were we at? Okay, so, so the horn. Okay, so he takes the horn. So Samuel dumps the entire horn, we assume, takes the entire horn, um, dumps the whole horn. It just says, took the horn of oil. It doesn't say how much. We're just going to assume, took the whole horn. It doesn't really matter. Um, so now he's anointed David to be the next king. Something that I think is interesting is, you get to chapter 16 and verse 13, it's like Samuel then steps out of the story. Because you go from chapter 16 all the way down to chapter 25 and there is only one more place where Samuel is talked about. So from chapter, excuse me, chapter 16 all the way down to chapter 25, now the story shifts and now the story is all about Saul and David, David and Jonathan, Saul and David. Bam, 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 right? So, I think it's kind of interesting that Samuel, even though the book is named after him, and even though he is the prophet and the judge, it's like he steps out of the scene. There's only one other place, and you get this in chapter 19, um, where you see a, a, a picture of Samuel again, because after Samuel, he anoints David, really doesn't know where he goes, what goes on, time goes by. I mean, this isn't like the next day kind of thing. There's some time that goes by, and at one point in time, Saul is trying to kill David, and it says in chapter 18, or chapter 19 and verse 18, it says, Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Saul at Ramah. So he goes down to Saul, and you can just imagine the story, or no, I'm sorry, not Saul, Samuel. He went down to Samuel at Ramah, and you can just imagine, he gets down there and says, Oh, Samuel, I'm in a world of hurt. You anointed me king over Israel, but that guy that you anointed first, he won't give up, and he won't leave, and so now we're, he's trying to hunt me down, and so you get a little bit of a picture right here, in chapter 18 down through verse 24, in verse 18 down through verse 24, in chapter 19, you get a little picture of Samuel, and then you don't see anything else about Samuel until chapter 25. And right here in chapter 19, David gets with Samuel. He and Samuel then go and they stay down at Naoth. And Saul finds out they're at Naoth. He sends people to go kill him. They get down there, and instead of killing David, they start prophesying like Samuel was prophesying. Saul's like, that's not what I said to do. I told you to go kill him, and now they're prophesying. So then Saul gets down there, and so this is... Uh, da, 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 da. Verse 21, verse 22. Um, then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Seku. Um, he asked about where David was at. Verse 23. Um, and the Spirit of God came upon him. This would be Saul also. And he went and he prophesied until he came to Naoth in Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes. And he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? Now, Sometimes I'm reading in Scripture and I say to myself, there needs to be more to the story. And then you get to chapter 20 and verse 1 and it's like the story just shifts. No, 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 no. You've got Saul who's trying to kill David laying naked prophesying before the Lord out of town. How'd that come to end? I mean, how did that finish up? I mean, why couldn't at that point Samuel have been like, Hey, buddy, 
you know, you need to vacate, you need to move out of the, you know, you need to move out so that David can move in. I mean, you can just imagine all the conversations that might have had, could have had, should have had, and it's like you get to the end of verse 24, and then starts chapter 20, and it's like they just ignore it and just go on. I find it interesting that he that it has in there that they were at a well. Yeah. The well, a well, you know, like Moses ended up at a well. You know, that stands out. Yes. I just so if you ever get there and you're like, why where'd the rest of the story go? I don't know. We'll find out that together. Because ah, there's some places in, this, in the Bible that I'm like, that doesn't finish the story. That does not finish the story. That, that does not put my mind at ease on what happened. It's not important. I know, Miss Carol, but I would kind of like to know what happened next. And it's like we jump from this to the end. I mean, we just jump four or five chapters in the story. And I would like to... <coughs> Back to the wells. Hold on. Rabbit trail. Sure. That's a commonplace. Mm-hmm. It was like, meets with the whales. So, so, <laughs> well, right? You know, so now you, oh, now you can get it. I'm just going to leave it alone here. Life's giving water. You know? Yeah. I mean, there's something here. To me. And if God is prophesying through Saul, then what is Saul doing with a harmful spirit not being obedient and handing the reins of the kingdom over David? <laughs> I mean, that, and that that then that rabbit goes on to then Judas, one of the disciples of Jesus, does the same thing. How is he performing miracles when elsewhere it implies that he was lost and then was indwelt by the Holy, indwelt by Satan at the very end? How in the world is he doing miracles if he's a bad guy? I mean, he's just sovereignty of God. Double agents. I mean, it's just I don't. I just don't. I just don't get it. Well, God allows. Yeah. God allows. He can use anybody. Well, I agree. I agree with you. I'm just saying. I just yeah. in my mind, it's like I, I, I want more. I mean, I, I li- I'd like to have a little bit more there. So, so yeah. So you get to the First Samuel 19. So Saul. Westerns. You like the black hat, the white hat. I, I just feel like I just feel like we should end one story before we start a second story. I, I just think we should. I, I'm very, uh, you know, it talks about men are like waffles and women are like spaghetti as far as the way we think and the way our mind works, you know. And it's like go from one compartment to the other. I don't. I'm not leaving the first compartment till I, you know, till I finish the first compartment. I, I, we're not touching and we're not going back. I mean, it's. Anyways, so you get to First Samuel 19. There's another scene where Samuel shows up. And then after this, 1 Samuel 20, all the way to 1 Samuel chapter 25, we don't see anything else more about Samuel until you get to 1 Samuel chapter 25 and in verse 1. And it says, Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Again, that's it. Now here's here's what really just kind of sticks in my crawl about this because that is all that is said about his death, his burial, and the way that he was remembered. That's all that was said. And yet, here's what kind of just really not like it's up to me. You go back to 1 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 15, you read this. 
Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there he also judged Israel. And he built there an altar to the Lord. So, if as soon as he is weaned, Mama, Hannah, takes him to the tabernacle, says, Alright, Eli, he's yours. And from the moment he is weaned, give or take a couple of days, from the moment he's weaned, from then on, for the rest of his life, either he's serving under Eli, or he's serving at the discretion and the prompting of God. So he spends his entire life in service of God, and when this last prophet and judge dies, the Bible says, he died, and the people were sad. Next. And we move on. Now we're going to start talking about David and Abigail. I mean, we just move. We don't talk about a time of mourning. We don't talk about him laying in state. We don't talk about how his family came and were just distraught. We didn't talk about a memorial service. We didn't talk about how he was remembered. It just says that he died. They got together, was sad, buried him. Next. Never mentioned again. Never mentioned again. Well, no. No. <laughs> no. Okay, so that just kind of sticks. It just kind of like the man spent his entire life in service to the Lord. And in God's revealed word to us today, he gets one verse about his death. And that's it. And I just think, man, maybe I should check my expectations. <laughs> <laughs> about about how people are going to think about me or remember me or go on about me. I mean, because sometimes, you know, people think, well, when I die, I'm just going to leave this big old hole and everybody's going to miss me and everybody's going to wonder where I've been and nobody will be able to figure out how to get do anything after I'm gone. And we far too overestimate how easily we are replaceable. Anyways, so, it's First Samuel chapter 25, he dies. You say, well, okay, so logically he dies. That's the end of Samuel. No more Samuel in the rest of the Bible. Then you go to 1 Samuel chapter 28. And this is where it gets really spooky. And this is where you get into passages that a lot of preachers won't ever talk about and won't ever touch because they don't have an answer. Don't worry, I don't have an answer either. But at the same time, we're talking about Samuel, so here we are. So, here's how the story plays out. Saul is on the run, not from David, but he is on the run from the Philistines. Scared. Philistines are coming after him. Doesn't know what to do. Thinks to himself, well, you know what? All this time, I could go to Samuel, and Samuel would tell me good or bad, but Samuel would give me some word from the Lord. So, it says in chapter 28, that he goes down. This is, uh, let's say, I'm gonna, you can start in verse 8. He disguised himself, put on other garments, and he went, he and two men with him, and they came to a woman by the night. And he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. So it's some type of a divination, some type of a New Orleans down there on what street? Now, what's the street in New Orleans? 
Bourbon Street. I mean, this is like some Bourbon Street stuff, all right? Down there in New Orleans, really don't know what's going on. The woman's like, you're crazy. Um, it's illegal for me to do that. And if I get caught doing any kind of conjuring or any kind of incantation or anything like that, I'll get in trouble. He's like, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. Then verse 11, then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel for me. And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. The woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. Finds out. Then, verse 15. Then Samuel said to Saul. Now, if you had the rest of your life, you could read commentaries and explanations and people's ideas of what all this means. And there have been a lot of people that have tried to say, well, it was a ghost. He was seeing a vision. It was, he was in a trance. It was some out-of-body supernatural experience. I don't know. Here's what I know. He goes down there. There is a witch at Endor that however she did it, she was able to conjure up a likeness, a presence of Samuel that she could discern as Samuel, that Saul could discern was Samuel. And this image, presence, person, I don't know, had enough where they, this person, Samuel, could talk to Saul. And from the explanation of the passage, we have no reason to think it was um, some type of wizard and Oz kind of thing. We have every reason to assume that it was Samuel. How does that work? I don't know. I don't, I, don't, I don't get it. I don't understand it. Now, so does that mean that divination and Ouija boards and all that kind of stuff that goes down on Bourbon Street, is that okay because we find in the Bible? Be careful that we don't think, make the exception the rule. It's shown here, presented here, as being something negative. Something that was done in disobedience. Something that was not okay. And something that, my personal opinion, is through satanic powers. Samuel wasn't happy about it. So then that, that brings in a whole can of worms. Where, where was Samuel? Was Samuel not in heaven? Because it said he came up. And we've always been taught that heaven is up and hell is down. So if Samuel is down, then where does that mean Samuel's at? And that is a whole opportunity for you to go home and spend the next five years figuring it out. And then come back and tell me. Because I would like to hear. Alright? So the most the most prominent, most popular kind of kind of gives me the most that I'm most comfortable with is the idea that he was in Sheol, the place of the dead. Holding place. In the Old Testament, you have these Old Testament figures that died. They died believing in God, but because Christ hadn't come and paid for their sins, they died in their sin. So they're in a Sheol, a holding place, if you will. Once Christ comes, this is 1 Peter chapter 3, then those people are set free and they go to heaven once the uh, crucifixion of Christ has come. Now, am I saying that I can back that up foolproof? No, I am not. And if you go around saying, well, Preacher Spence said, do, 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 do. I, I did say it and I'm on recording saying it, but I'm telling you, I this is something that I hold very tenderly and very gingerly because there's a lot of different ideas out there and there's a lot of people out there that I highly respect that have a different idea out there. So, this appearance, Samuel shows up, he speaks to Saul, Saul's like, I need help. Samuel's like, you don't understand, God's already rejected you, you're out, that's verse 18. And then, 
And then, once again, Samuel and Saul are having a conversation. Verse 20, Then Saul fell at once, full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. There was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. The story just stops. We don't know what happened to Samuel. We don't know if Samuel left. We, we, we don't know what happened. The story just takes off from Samuel, and then I goes back to Saul. Now, Saul gets up, he eats, he leaves, then he dies. So how did, where, where did Samuel go? have no idea. God can do whatever He wants to, but I sure wish He would give me a mailing address because I would like to know what happened because the story just ends. You go from verse 19 to verse 20 and it's like you got Samuel and Saul and they're having this conversation. You're like, ooh, this is weird. This is, ooh, we don't understand this. And then all of a sudden you go from 19 and then you go to verse 20 and all it is is Saul needing to eat some supper. You're like, what? Don't get it. However, the Bible. The Bible is true. The Bible is inerrant. And just because I don't understand it doesn't make it not true. And so was that 28-16? Uh, where Samuel is speaking to Saul? Yes. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. First Samuel 28, verse 16. Yes, sir. So he's speaking and they're having a conversation. So there's obviously something that was going on. Um, it just... So... Samuel dies in 1 Samuel 25, but that's not the last we see of him because we see him again in 1 Samuel 28. Then, after 1 Samuel 28, we don't see him anymore. Okay? Clear as mud? Is it already 8 o'clock? Okay. So he was, so he was, when he was speaking to Saul, he was a spirit? Basically, is what it, I mean, I know that's it to say it that way, but that's what's going on. There's something wrong with me. Yes. <laughs> yes and no. Well, I, so. Okay, so you, you asked. So they buried the body. So you go away to you go away to First Thessalonians four or First Corinthians fifteen, and it talks about when the Lord appears, then the spirits are with the Lord, and our bodies are resurrected, and our bodies meet our spirits, and we get our glorified body. Poof, here we go. All right. So our bodies don't ever go up or down. Our bodies remain in the earth. So where I'm at, this is kind of now gingerly and tenderly. Okay. So where I'm at is Samuel, the physical carcass of Samuel is buried in the dirt. That's 1 Samuel 25. His spirit is in Sheol. So when she conjures up, it's conjuring up the spirit. Now, that spirit had to have had an appearance and a voice because there was communication and because they were recognized. So where I'm at, very gingerly, is that, yeah, so Saul is having a conversation with the spirit of Samuel, not the physical body. So I have a women's study Bible, so it highlights when it's... Oh, that answers all of our questions. What does it say? Yeah, she was a known medium, that's what it says. Okay. Um, yeah, but it goes back to Samuel having that conversation with Seen it like that. Uh, whatever it was terrified her, and she's 
the medium. And because the way my Bible explains her, when you break, it has this whole thing about her, she's the medium of indoor. Like, she's known for this. So for me, when I read that, I'm like, oh, this freaks her out. This is what she does. So like I said, I mean, there's, there's, there's quite a few verses on it, but there's so many more questions. Yes, sir. When a person can predict what's coming up, what do you call that? So they would be considered to be a prophet. I just don't know of an instance of where we have today in a biblical example of somebody that can foretell the future. Actually, I always felt like the book of Revelation is the revelation. It's done. It's over. Everything's been revealed. And all we have to do is wait to see how it all plays out. And so, for me, I don't believe in I mean, revelation. I future telling is uh, demonic, too. We're not uh, to I, consult I, with mediums and horoscopes, and we're not to consult the stars. Uh, sure, sure. There's been times in the past that I have actually predicted. One time was, was Shelly used to watch a, a baby. And it was early in the morning. She then went in and took a shower, and she comes out, and I tell her the girl's name. She had called that she's going to run 30 minutes late, and then the phone rings, and she she's, answers it, and the girl tells her. So I said, yeah, Rhonda, I talked to you. And she goes, I just called you. And there's been different things in the past right. that I have. And one, time, one time was actually... I had cattle up at Randy's in Carroll's, and uh, that night I woke up and told Shelly that I had to get up to go get the cows because they got out, and uh, she said she finally talked me into going back to sleep, and uh, then the next day about 9 o'clock, we used to have pagers, so she sent the 911 on there, and I called her, and she says... Yeah, what you predicted last night, the cows were out at Randall's. Huh. And then I just, there's yeah. been different things. I mean, I God speaks to us. Yeah. In that we way. do have premonitions. Now, there's different people that I've yeah. seen that was going to pass or. I don't know. Vision. I think it speaks to our what, What's the. Yeah, because that, that's where for that vision or. or I don't know. It was prophecy back then, but what are we? What is it now when we have? So I, I think there's a distinction between saying this is what God is going to do tomorrow versus premonitions or ideas or impressions that you've had upon yourself. So, and where I, the only reason I make that distinction is because you'll see in the Bible, like First Corinthians chapter twelve, talks about the gift of prophecy. But then you have people. Charlatans out there like, oh, I've been given the gift of prophecy, so you come and follow me and give me your tithe and your offerings because I can tell you what's going to happen, you know. And I just because about prophecy though is uh, they don't cost anything, you know. They have nothing, you know. I mean, there's a lot. Correct. Uh, you can't prophesy if you ask Sure. So I just and there's a lot that's there in Samuel that. Uh, it's too much for us to try to cover in uh, 45 minutes. So, 
We didn't get to the third part, which is what lessons does he teach us? So I'm just going to leave that for homework, all right? Um, Because you've been very patient. So we're not going to move into that, but just be thinking about, okay, so if you think about the life of Samuel, then what what lessons are there? And I'm sure that you'll be able to find some. And uh, maybe we'll come back to that and visit that other night. So appreciate you being here. Of course, this Sunday, um, Sunday school, Sunday morning service, um, just another opportunity for us to come and to serve the Lord. So I'm grateful, grateful that you were here tonight. Um, Charles, would you be willing to close us in a word of prayer, sir?